Thanks so much for listening to the Clifton Church of Christ sermon podcast. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen, and we hope if ever you're in Clifton, Texas, you'll stop by and say hello. We hope you enjoy this sermon. Good morning, everyone. Glad to see all of you, and for those of you joining us online, we appreciate you being here. And uh, I've got, you know, in in preaching, uh, there's a lot of people that talk about having a hook at the beginning of your sermon something that grabs it and says, I need to pay attention. And uh, normally I don't have great hooks, but today I've got a great hook. Um, Today we are going to be talking about the wrath of God. Aren't you excited, right? Now how many of you have ever heard a sermon on the wrath of God before? Raise your hand if you've ever heard a sermon on the wrath of God before. Okay. Um, I am excited because uh, I, I firmly believe that There's really nothing special that I ever have to say aside from the fact that I try my best to read and research and find the things that are worth saying and then just repeat them to you. I don't really feel like it's anything that I have to say. That's why I try to lean so heavily on reading from the Bible because nothing I have to say matters. You don't come here to hear me, but you come here to hear God's word. And so I believe that Anytime you hear a preacher or anyone say that they know all the answers to it, that's a good sign that they're probably not worth listening to. So let me be the first to say what I'm going to talk about today in no way is the answer or is the explanation of the wrath of God. But what I I do have some exciting news is that you've probably never heard a wrath of God sermon like the one I'm about to preach. (laughs) And you've probably never heard an interpretation of the wrath of God like the one I'm about to speak. But the good news is, is that everything I'm about to say just comes from lots of trying to study what exactly is going on here in Romans. And so we're about to read a hefty chunk of scripture. And this hefty chunk of scripture has a lot of stuff that is... uh, There's a lot of debates about, there's a lot of arguments about, uh, a lot of just kind of not fun reading. So buckle up and enjoy. Um, But uh, I think you're going to see that uh, you'll enjoy this interpretation of the wrath of God. Okay, so uh, let's go ahead and read. Starting in Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18, right where we left off. We just got done with Paul introducing himself to the Romans, the Roman church. Uh, telling how much he's appreciative of them. He's been praying to God fervently for their wonderful faith. And he's not ashamed to talk to them about the good news of Jesus Christ because it is through the faithfulness of God in Jesus Christ that we are able to be made righteous and to be righteous before God. So he talks about God revealing this power and this righteousness. And then in 18, he talks about God revealing something else. Revealing the righteousness of God in 17, and now the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Now that's really good writing by Paul. He said God's invisible qualities that you can't see, God has made them clearly seen. Isn't that kind of a nice play on words there? It's invisible, so you can't see them. But he's saying God has made them clearly seen. He's revealed them. Being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. I would really love to talk to Paul about this and what exactly he means here. But you can tell Paul clearly believes that every single person on earth cannot have lived their life and not come to a conclusion that there is a God. 
based on God's divine power and nature that he has revealed in this world. That's what Paul believes. And so he believes that for them to not live in the truth of God, they don't really have an excuse because it's not like, well, I don't know about this God. Everyone back then believed in God. It wasn't a question. Today you talk about whether you're a believer or an atheist. Back then it wasn't that. It was which gods do you believe in? How many gods do you believe in? And for Paul, he's saying God's made his truth plain. And everyone doesn't have an excuse to say that they noticed that there is this divine power. For although they knew God, even though they knew that there was a God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Uh, this is a key phrase. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. This is where our The Good Life series really pays off some dividends here. Because remember, what did I say over and over? In the New Testament, foolishness is not about being stupid, and wisdom is not about being the smartest person in the room. Wisdom and foolishness is all about how do you understand God? Do you obey and fear God? You are wise. Do you ignore and not treat God as God? You are a fool. This is what Paul is saying here. They exchanged, starting, continuing in verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. This might sound really weird for us today, but it would not have sounded weird to the people in Rome reading this because on every street corner, on every nook and cranny of every building would have been a god or an idol to something. Some kind of god that was called Mars or Neptune or some kind of god that worships, you know, is about the economy or a god that's about uh, good crops or some god that's about procreation. All of these gods have been all over the place. And, and Paul is saying, look around. We've exchanged the god for these gods that look like people and reptiles and birds. Therefore, God gave them over in their sinful desires, in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Notice that he said this twice now. He said the phrase they, earlier in verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. And now he's saying, verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is praised, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to their shameful lusts. Verse 24, therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. Verse 26, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves a due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, just as they exchanged the knowledge of God, so God gave them over, third time, to a depraved mind, so that they, so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness. Now, this list, the thing that I just read, some of you may be able to say, yeah, I'm not like those people. You can't do that with this list, Okay. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy. I've been full of envy before, many times. I've never murdered anyone. Murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips. I've definitely gossiped before. Slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. Definitely been arrogant and boastful.
middle school. When Catherine broke up with me when I was a sophomore in high school and she was a freshman, I think it was because I was a little too full of myself. Thankfully, we made it work. Um, they invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. No one's ever done that. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decrees that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these things, but for Paul, the very worst, the very worst possible thing. Not only do they, they do these wrong things, but they approve of those who practice them. They've gotten so, as he would say, their hearts, their foolish hearts have been so darkened and decayed that they are at a place where they even think these wrong things are okay or right or wise, as he would say. Now, isn't that just the most cheerful passage we could possibly read ever? Um, one thing I want to say, I believe as, you're, as the preacher here, I owe it to you to talk about some of the details in this. But I also know that if I get too caught up in some of these details, the whole sermon's just going to be in the weeds and you're really not going to get much out of it. So if you want to talk about any detail from anything I just read, come to Wednesday night class and let's talk about it, okay? Let's talk about all the details. And if you want, I'll report it for you. I'll send it to you. But what I do want to talk about is two big key things that I think if we really reflect on these two key things, it will unlock a lot of the details of this passage, okay? So these two things that we're going to wrestle with, we're going to talk about, if we come to come to a conclusion on, go back and read some of those details with that in mind, and I think it'll help you a lot. So the first question we need to think of is, the first thing is, what is godlessness or sinfulness or wickedness? It's the first thing Paul says in verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of the people. And I want you to think, if I had told you what is godlessness, sinfulness, what would you probably think of? And I think the answer that I would say most of the time when I think of sinfulness is, and this is how we normally do it, is that God has this list of sins. These are things you do not do. And that people who continually, actively choose to do those things live a sinful life. Is that how you would understand it? I don't think that that's wrong, but I don't think that that's what Paul sees in this passage. Not, not that Paul says, no, that's not it. He says, yeah, I get what you're saying, but this is more what Paul means. For Paul, godlessness and sinfulness is this key one thing. It's one thing, and all sins are like a, a ripple effect from this one thing. Godlessness and sinfulness is when we exchange the glory of our God-given design for the worship of a created thing. He says it over and over in the passage. How many times? He says three times they exchange something for something else. They exchange the immortal God for these stone images. Instead of worshiping God as God, they have decided to say, you know what, I'm going to worship this stone rock thing, okay? Instead of worshiping God by the way that you're supposed to live your life, they've exchanged it for another way of living your life in sexual relations. And in, instead of treating God as the truth, they've exchanged the knowledge of that for something else. And so over and over for Paul, the main thing is, is that the people of God have decided to exchange God's glory for something else. Uh, a lot of the things that I read in preparation for this think that Paul is probably connecting with the story of Moses on the mountain with the golden calf. Remember, the people have just been free from Egypt. They're all, Moses has gone up in the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. And what are Aaron and all the priests and all the people doing down below? What are they doing? They're creating this golden calf. And if you look, Aaron doesn't say, 
He doesn't say, well, we want to worship this other God. No, what does he say? He says, we want to worship Yahweh, God, so let's make a golden calf. And so you're kind of like, well, he had good intentions, right? He, he wasn't trying to worship uh, Baal or you know some other God. He's trying to worship Yahweh. But what he's done is Moses is up here trying to meet with the God, but the people down below are like, you know what? I can't really see that God. I can't really understand that God. I want to make something that's a little more understandable, a little more visible for me. Let's make this cow, this, this golden calf. And that all sins come from a place of where we choose, instead of worshiping God as God, we choose to exchange it for something that's a little more understandable, a little more in our grasp. And many of you may think, uh, well, you know, Drew, that's a great point and all, but I don't really see a whole lot of idols around here. I don't go to school, and as we walk in, there's this statue of a, a serpent with a, you know, a, a trident, and, and we're supposed to, you know, I don't really have that. I think you've probably heard this before, but all, every single one of us has idols throughout our life. An idol is any time we take something that was meant to be a creation, a created thing for good purposes, and we put too much of our value, too much of our hope, too much of our self-worth in that thing. So let me give you some examples. For any of us who take money and think that our life depends and ends on how much money we have, that is idol worship. That is taking a created thing and making it the creator. More important than the creator. For anyone who finds their self-worth only in how nice their car is or how nice their house is, that has become an idol for you. Okay? That is taking, that is at the root of Paul's big beef with sins is, hey, no, 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 that's a good thing. That's a thing that I have good purposes for, but you've taken it and you've put it in place of God. Physical appearance. And then the one that I would say most people I know who would call themselves not a sinner struggle with the most is the idol of our job and our work and our career. We've been trained our whole lives that your work, the more you work, the better person you are. I believe that hard work is the backbone of a good life. Read, read through Proverbs. It's nonstop. Proverbs is about how important work is. But how many people do you know that have struggled with putting work above family, are always willing to say three or four more hours of work rather than coming home? That if they were to get fired from their job or if something were to happen to their job, that their identity is gone. That's who I am. I'm, I'm the blank. I'm the, you know, preachers do it. I know a lot of preachers that don't know how to retire because they don't know who their identity is if they're not the preacher that everyone calls from the first sign of trouble. That is taking something that was meant for a purpose and making it our God, okay? And for Paul, all sins come from that root, in my opinion, based on this. Another example that I'd like to say is you can probably trace any type of thing. Like, let's imagine that you've got a young girl in college who's doing all sorts of things that we would say she shouldn't be doing. We would say she's sinning because she's doing those things. For me, I would say the true sin comes from feeling like those things are more important in the fact that her identity and her need for acceptance, a good thing, has become corrupted because she's trying to find acceptance from something besides God. Does that make sense? Not if that makes sense. So God created us in the beginning, Adam and Eve, human beings to be the image bearers of God, to worship and glorify God. And every time we choose to give our allegiance and our needs to anything else, we degrade and decay that image of what we were supposed to be. And we exchange the glory of the immortal God for something else. 
So now the, the next thing that I think is really crucial to helping understand this passage. Another, here's the big question, right, that I, I got you with at the beginning. What is the wrath of God? Paul begins, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. When I was, I would say when I was growing up, this is how I understood the wrath or anger of God. And, and like I said, this isn't, when you hear this, I don't think you're going to think, oh, that's, I'm not trying to say this is wrong. I'm trying to say this is not necessarily what Paul would say. The way I grew up was, we have a good and just, perfect God. And when we sin, we alienate ourselves from God, and God is angry with our sin. And that he's constantly angry with our sin, and we can't be near him. But, but God decided, instead of taking out his anger and wrath on me, he decided to send his son to be the punching bag who would take all his anger out on his son on the cross so that he won't take his anger out on me. Does that sound like something you've heard before? Another thing that you've probably heard before or thought before is that every time we sin, God is just, well, man, I kind of want to get you. I kind of want to smite you or hurt you. And that, praise be to God, we have Jesus because he's the one that constantly keeps God from inflicting that on us. But... If you come forward and get baptized, then you don't ever have to worry about that day when God's going to really let it out on you, okay? Does that sound like something you've heard before? I want you to hear me say, I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm saying that's not a full picture of what I believe Paul would want us to understand. For Paul, let's look at a few things from the Old Testament that I think is going to help you understand where Paul views the wrath and anger of God. So Judges 2.14 says this, in God's anger against Israel, the Lord Yahweh gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. In God's anger, he gave them over. Psalm 106, 40-42. Therefore the Lord was angry with his people, and he abhorred his inheritance, and he gave them into the hands of the nations, and their foes ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them and subjected them to their power. So do you remember when I said when we were reading Romans earlier? Three times Paul says, it's verse 24, 26, and 28. Therefore, God gave them over to their sinful desires. Verse 26, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. 28, For furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over. That can't be a coincidence that he repeated that three times. Anybody think it's a coincidence? I don't. Paul's too good. For Paul, the definition of the wrath and anger of God is this. God's handing us over to what we want and choose for ourselves. God's anger is seen when he says, that's what you want? Okay, you can go ahead and do that. I'll let it you think about that for a second. You can almost imagine it's like a parent who really doesn't want their child to do something, but a parent who says, listen, if this is the thing you keep coming back to and you keep wanting, I'm not going to stop you. And that that is what Paul sees as God's wrath and anger. For him to say, you want to worship other gods? I will let you do that. And you might think, well, doesn't he sure punish them with all those other people? For my understanding, I don't think he's punishing them. He's saying, I have created this world with certain consequences. 
And when you choose to trade me and exchange me for some other God, there will be consequences. And my anger is seen when I choose to say, okay, you want it that way, I'll let you have it. Another way that I think is worth saying this, if it helps it helps me to have two different ways of saying it. The wrath of God, God's anger is God handing people over to a process that's self-chosen that results in death. And you might think, wait, you mean death like he's going to kill you? No, no, no. Far worse than that. The kind of death that you have that has nothing to do with your pulse or your heart. The kind of death that you go through when you constantly choose to exchange the immortal God for other idols. When you do that, your foolish hearts will decay and darken and you will begin the process of dying. And every time you choose to substitute God for that, for money, for cars, for, for sex, for power, for status, for job, validation, you will slowly experience the wrath of God because he'll say, you want that, God? You can have it. And in that self-chosen, self, and, and some people would say, well, I don't want that. You don't think you want that, but that's the consequences of what comes when you choose that. Does that make sense? Okay, so here's a great quote by N.T. Wright. Sorry, I, I think I put it on size 32, but that looks way smaller than 32. But God has made the world in such a way that kindness, gentleness, generosity, humility, love, and all its many forms is life-giving. He has created this order that when you choose to honor God as creator and his image bearers by living out kindness, gentleness, generosity, love, joy, peace, patience, those kind of things, that it brings life. While evil in its many forms is deadly, it is the steady process of corruption. This wrath of God is not, I'm going to hurt you. It's, if this is what you're choosing, then I won't stop you. But you will face the corruption and the decay that comes with it. So I have two takeaway points, and I'll be done. The first thing is a commission to you. To say, if this is what we believe, that living a sinful, godless life is not about whether or not you follow all the right rules and don't break the wrong rules, but it's just about not exchanging God for other gods, then this is my first call. Don't exchange God for gods. Make God your one God. Make him the one that you give your allegiance to. Make him the one that you find your validation, your purpose, your meaning, not anything else. It's, there's really, it's, not, it's not more complicated than that. It's hard to do. But I don't have some fancy analogy to make this point. Don't exchange God for God's. And then the next point is, God will give you what you want in life, whether it leads to life or death. If you want God to be your God, he will give you that, and he will give you life. If you want other things to be your God, his anger is seen by him saying, okay, I'll let you have that too. Um, there's a famous show that I'm not encouraging you to watch, but it's very famous, called Breaking Bad. I won't get into all the details, but the show is about this teacher who's had a pretty rough life, who finds out that his, his adult, or his grown-up wife is about to have a surprise baby, who finds out that he's got very advanced cancer, and basically is in this place where he's like, I'm, this is awful, this is the worst thing. And the point of the show is called Breaking Bad, so it gives this away. But what he ends up doing is he ends up deciding to do some illegal things to try and earn like, I think something like two or three million dollars so that he can leave that for his family before he dies of cancer. And the whole premise of the show is that he starts as this good person. But as he continually tries, starts doing these illegal things and 
constantly having to do a little bit worse and a little bit more bad things and lie a little bit more. And to try and do this good thing, you can tell he be, starts to continually become more and more of a decayed and to break bad, as the name of the show would be. He's becoming worse and worse. And I love this illustration because would you say, because at the end of the show, he basically, I don't want to give anything away, but he basically loses everything. And he's he's still at the very end trying to hold on hope that he did it all for the right reasons, but he ends up losing everything. And you might look at it and say, well, you can see God punished him for making that bad choice. But I, I would say what Paul would say is, no, no, no. God's punishment is revealed in the fact that he said, you want to go this route of death and lying and corruption and evil? Then that's what you're going to, then that's, that's the, you're, you chose that, you wanted that, that's what you'll get. And praise be to God that we're going to get to keep reading Romans because this big problem that Paul is talking about, he has a great answer and solution to the problem. And his name is Jesus Christ. And it's the fact that even though all these, this sinfulness and decay that we face and all this rule following that we try and have, Paul has a wonderful answer. He says, if you have faith in my son, or if you have faith in God's son, Jesus Christ, faith in him, then his righteousness will be your righteousness. So just keep listening for that good news to come. Last thing, I'm going to read this quote from N.T. Wright, and then, then we'll be done. When you worship God in whose image you were made, you reflect that image more brightly and become more fully and truly human, who you were meant to be. When you worship something other than the living God, something that is itself merely another created object, and hence subject to decay and death, you diminish that image barrenness, that essential humanness. When you worship God, you will become more and more who you are meant to be. When you choose something else to worship, you will more and more become that, something that is destined for decay and death. My call to you is that Jesus has come and said, come to me because I want you to have new life. Come to me. I don't want you to be a part of this story that ends in decay. And we know that for anyone who chooses to have faith in Christ, their story ends in that life, in that humanness that God has in store for us. If any of you would like to know more about that or have any prayer requests, some elders will be standing at the doors. And we'd love to talk to you now or even later this week as we stand and sing this song.